0: Man, I got some energy this morning, so if you open your Bible, let's open your Bible to Ezra chapter 4. If you are a guest with us today, we just started a couple weeks ago a series called Life After Exile, and we're rehashing uh, the story of Israel as they are coming back from Babylon. Now, uh, if you're in any history whatsoever, you know any history of the Old Testament. Uh, Israel was taken off captive by Assyria and then Babylon. in uh, two different uh, groups of people, waves, several waves. Uh, all because of Israel's unbelief disobedience and compromise and so as you see uh as israel is taken off um, the babylon uh there's a promise made and he makes the promise through a guy named jeremiah daniel discovers the promise that in seven 70 years afterwards israel will be brought back and so uh we're kind of rehashing that story through the books of ezra and nehemiah and so we want to look at that again today we're only just a few chapters in so if you've missed any part of this I promise you, I will not leave you confused. And if you look confused, I'll say it again a different way until we're all on the same page. Amen? Now, last week, I may or may not have preached 45 minutes, okay? I may or may not have. Today, I will not preach 40 or 45 minutes. I preach a little bit shorter. Is that okay with y'all? Yeah. Amen, right? Y'all are like, yeah, that's right, preacher. You got us all on the same page for the first time ever. Amen, right? Amen. So I'll preach a little shorter today because I know we've got a lot going on, and we're gonna have prayer uh, in just a moment too for our Uganda mission team before we wrap up the service today. And so, uh, nonetheless, so I'm excited to be back in this book with you. I want to remind you again that Ezra and Nehemiah were written really as a collective whole. You really introduced to the work of God to restore Israel, bring them back, much like the Exodus out of Egypt, back to or to the Promised Land. It's it's much like that incident. But Ezra and Nehemiah were actually getting given three different leaders. You got Zerubbabel which we'll see again today, uh, great name, it literally means born in uh, exile, born in Babylon, okay, is what his name really means, uh, uh, born out of Babylon, and so uh, you got Zerubbabel, and then you got Ezra, the namesake, you'll find him in about chapter 7, and then we'll get the whole book of Nehemiah, dealing with Nehemiah, and then later on, Ezra and Nehemiah, okay, but we're really not even to Ezra yet, we're at Zerubbabel, okay, if you are naming children right now, pick that as your next kid's name, Zerubbabel, and he'll be picked on, I promise you, at school for a while time. anyway, Zerubbabel, and Ezra chapter 4 is a unique chapter. Ezra chapter 4, we are, we're not, not in a chronological timeline. Alright, this is one of the things we struggle with in the Bible is we look at the books of the Old Testament and we make the false assumption that if we begin reading in Genesis chapter one and we ring all the way up through Malachi or Malachi, right? Malachi, we we it's a continuous timeline of chronology, okay? But that's not necessarily the case. So when you get to the Kings and the Chronicles, you see a lot of duplication, right? Like you read this like, hey, I've read that or I've heard that before. Well, you have. It's being told from a different perspective, okay? Sometimes we even get uh, some books out of line based upon the genre or the type of literature that it is, and so they kind of group accordingly those books of the Old Testament. And then even inside of those books, you you get pauses in the story, you get a zoom out, so to speak, and then you kind of get some overview. That's what we find in Ezra chapter 4. You're about to discover trouble, opposition, rebellion. All right, adversity, right? We're about to discover that. And what you find in Ezra chapter 4 is really a summary of what we'll find in Ezra chapter 4 and following and the book of Nehemiah. And let's just be honest with you, every one of our lives since, right? Before and after this time. All of us face on some level, some form or fashion, some adversity, some opposition, right? Some, some conflict, right? Now, if you know me, I'm, I'm not a, I don't like conflict. I really just don't like conflict. I, I like to, to, to draw people to peaceable agreement, right? But sometimes, listen carefully, sometimes conflict is inevitable, in Ezra chapter 4, we're introduced to the conflict that begins. Now that Israel is beginning to come back to Jerusalem, to Judah, and begin to rebuild the temple, and begin to rebuild this, the culture, and later on the city walls of Jerusalem. There's going to be conflict. All right? So if you have a Bible, I want us to read together again in Ezra chapter 4. All right? I want to remind you before we get to the scripture, the first verse, verse, uh, something that Billy Graham said. Billy Graham arguably the greatest evangelist of our time, uh, said every successful work of God must have opposition. Think about it. Every successful work of God must have opposition. Sometimes our opposition becomes because of our own sin, right? And we are opposed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about righteous opposition, right? Right? You are doing the right thing, and somebody doesn't like you doing the right thing. As one author said, with God, anything that stands against you will always be inferior to what resides within you, right? I'll say it again because I talk fast. With God, anything that stands against you will always be inferior to what resides or who resides within you, right? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So when the opposition, when the opposition comes, you are not alone in the opposition. Amen? If you're with me right now, you're, like, you're, you're listening to me. If you've ever had conflict, would you just give me a Baptist uh-huh? Uh-huh. I think everybody said, at least, at least everybody moaned, right? Some of y'all are so bad, you like, you don't even know, uh-huh. You're like, mm, 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 right? Some of y'all Baptist calls, like, oh, preach, preacher, you know. Oh, that's all of us. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, all right? Let's start reading. Now, when the adversaries of Judah... The adversaries, the the opposition. And and, okay, so so the people who come back and are starting to build, they've already got enemies. You understand that? They've already got enemies. Why do the people who are coming back to Jerusalem already have enemies? Because there are always going to be people who do not want to see God's will accomplished. Always. The adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord the God of Israel. So they, they hear the news that the temple is being rebuilt, destroyed some 70 years prior to. It's been laid in ruins. If you've ever been to, to Israel, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, some of those ruins are still obvious. So Much of it's been uh, put back together in some but there's still ruins everywhere. It's not like it used to be. The, certainly the temple is no longer there. And so we're talking about a, a, a destroyed temple. Now, it would be rebuilt by Zerubbabel, right? But there's a destruction that's taken place. They discover that the nation of Israel started to come back. And there's people who were left, Jews, and then there's non-Jews. There are Canaanites still living in the land, and they got a problem with the Jews rebuilding the temple. Now you've got to ask the question, who are these adversaries? Probably some of them are Samaritans. You know, if you read the New Testament, there's constant conflict between uh, devout Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were people who, when Assyria came in and Babylon came in, they intermarried, right? And they they, they stayed. They began to marry other Canaanite people, right? And there was some compromise on, beh- on behalf of that. And so they were looked down on by the Jews, and there was conflict between the two. And so the Samaritans were probably part of the adversaries. But most likely, we're not just talking about Samaritans. We're probably talking about other Canaanite individuals and tribes as well. These were people who were opposed to the work of the Lord. It's important. Opposition came early in the story of Ezra. I remind you that even in opposition, God is faithful. Amen. You have a worship guide on your row. I want you to grab your worship guide. There's a few fill in the blanks. Uh, If we have live stream, I'm not sure if we do or don't. If we have live stream, take some notes on live stream as well. There's also, some of y'all don't even use this. I've been making available uh, digital uh, notes. You can actually go to our website and access them and save them bad boys if you like digital copies. But it's not bad to take notes, teenagers, with your hands. It's great, okay? All right? So some of y'all are doing it right now. Olivia's like, what? I'm doing it, right? Good job. Y'all get an A for the class. Number one in your worship guides. Don't be deceived by appearance. The heart discloses one's loyalty. Do not be deceived by appearance. I'm going to show you the text where this comes from. The heart discloses one's loyalty. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5: he says, People who are opposed to God's work, they have an appearance of godliness but they deny its power. Paul would say to Timothy, avoid such people who who parade around as religious people, parade around as spiritual people, but their heart is far from God. Be careful with those people. You're going to see that played out in the text. Matthew chapter seven verse twenty one through twenty three. People who uh, parade around as religious doesn't necessarily make them saved. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you're saved. There's a very big difference between religion of Christianity and a walking relationship as a disciple of Jesus. Amen. Right? You can walk the walk, but but does it change heart? He would say in uh, Jesus. Matthew chapter seven verse twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? I.e., weren't we very religious? And and Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? Religion doesn't mean relationship with Christ. There are many people who fill churches all over the world of religious people. But just because you do all the traditions and the rituals does not make you a born-again believer. Think about 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel's going to find a king for Israel. And this is what the Lord told Samuel. Do not look on his appearance. Be careful with appearances. Or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord, listen carefully, sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So the Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, that these people, these adversaries who, who will present themselves as religious, devout, supposed Jews. They approach Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses, and they said to them, Hey, let us build with you. We want to join the work. Now, if you're like, like I'm, a, I'm a preacher, and somebody says, Hey, we want to help. I'm like, sign them up, Right? I don't even know if you're you qualified? I don't care. If you're willing. Sign them up, right? At least Rube will asked some questions. You know, maybe we should ask some more questions. I don't know, right? So, they say, let us rebuild with you. For we worship, listen carefully, we worship your God. See the your? We worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of as we Let's say it with confidence, it's king of Assyria who brought us here. Ooh, certainly we're not from there. It's your God. So uh, it's just is being judgmental to say, the, the, these folks may not be real, genuine followers of God. These people who may be going through some ritual service, maybe even some, some level of Judaism, but certainly no heart change and commitment, right? Got to be careful. They appear maybe like, hey, that's good help. But sometimes the appearance of good help can actually be, detrimental to the work and that's what you see here verse 3 but Zerubbabel <laughs> Zerubbabel I, I praise God there's a level of discernment about Zerubbabel he said oh something's not right about this I was reading several commentaries there's different views I'm like was Zerubbabel wrong to, to not take the help and I, I've read several commentaries well no he was absolutely right to not take the help I, I'm kind of leaning towards the, I think he was right to not take the help because I think he was discerning because he understood that not all help is good help amen not all good help is good help. Some suppose that help actually causes greater conflict, greater division. And there has to be a, a discernment of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? Just because somebody says, Well, I got all the answers for you, be, be careful. Be, be careful, right? Because the answers aren't found in people, they're found in the Word of God. Now, God's Word could be spoken through the lips of people, certainly. But be very, very careful. Zerbal Yeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel, they said to them. Number two, we'll get to the rest of that verse. The path of least resistance is seldom the prudent road of obedience. I'm a peacemaker, y'all. This is transparent. I'm a peacemaker. And sometimes I will err on the side of the path of least resistance. Amen. I mean, just be honest with you. I, I mean, bless other peacemakers. I believe that verse. Bless and, and, if possible, as far as it depends with you, as on, on, live peaceably with all people. I, I I love that verse. Like, if possible, I, I'm going to try to nudge you as a church. We're going to live peaceably together. And so the path of least resistance. Is, is sometimes, and this is not just me. It's all of us. We default to that, right? But the path uh, the path of least resistance is not always the wise decision. In fact, I would argue many times it is the unwise decision, especially in the days we grow into right now. Our culture, the easiest way, is probably not the best way, probably not the most fruitful way, and probably not the most God-honoring way. The path of least resistance is seldom the prudent, prudent way, prudent road of obedience. Psalm 20, verse 7, David says, "Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we trust." In the name of the Lord, our God. We don't trust in reason. We don't trust in instinct. We trust in the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? To make the wise decision, not necessarily the easy decision. Daniel Aiken said, Christian character is not created in the moment of adversity. Christian character is revealed in the moment of adversity. What we're seeing unfold here in Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other leaders is that there's some character that they're starting to pick up on some things that are wrong. If you ever, and please don't nudge your spouse or your neighbor or look across the room, please, okay? Y'all with me? Say, huh? Right? Have you ever walked up on somebody you just knew something was wrong? Maybe, maybe it wasn't hardship, but you just knew there was something going on there that you just need to be careful with. Maybe it's the person at work and you're like, there's just something there that if you're not careful, you're gonna get pulled into something you don't need to be pulled into, right? That's that's called wisdom. That's called Christian character that's checking inside of you, the Holy Spirit of God who's checking your conscience, right? I think that's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is checking the conscience of the leaders of Israel in this moment. Number three, to make peace, so important, to make peace without truth is to actually create greater conflict. To make peace without truth is to create greater conflict. Now, is, is, is truth and grace, are, 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 they, are they possible to work together? Absolutely. In fact, I would argue they're the same side, a different side of the same coin, right? We need both truth and grace in our life. Jesus was supposedly full of both truth and grace. Now, you and I can't be full of both truth and grace because you ain't Jesus, right? And I ain't Jesus, right? But we should aim for that, be full of truth and grace, right? But listen, peace at the, at the, the compromise of truth is not peace. It's facade. We see in our culture today, we see a lot of, uh, you, we're going to unify everybody. But what are we unifying everybody under? The question. It's not political. It's just like, like wh- what's, what's the underlying truth here? Is there truth here? Is there? Matthew 5 tells us, the blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all, but there, let me, if possible is a really important statement. It's not always possible. It's not always possible. Now, should we pursue peace? Absolutely. But sometimes there will be people in our lives, this is really important, that do not want peace. In those cases, it's not always possible to have Peace. Continue on, verse 3. Zerubbabel, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses said to them, you have nothing to do with us. That seems like mean, right? Basically they said, no, you ain't. Uh-uh. You ain't. We don't want your help. Let me free up your schedule, right? The, the question is, sometimes in church ministry, you've heard this before, how do, you, how do you fire volunteers? You know how you fire volunteers? By the way, I don't fire volunteers very often because Lord knows I need all the help I can get, Amen. Amen, thank you, thank you, right? You, you know how you fire volunteers? You free up their future. Well, we, we just think maybe there's different ministry someplace else for you, right? That seems so, so ministerial, you know, right? So, so grace-filled. This is not grace-filled, man. Listen, you have nothing to do with us. We don't want your help. That's what he said. Wow. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build, house, build the, Lord, the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And as a result of this, conflict created, not averted. There was not peace found because peace would have actually caused more problems. But guess what? Problems still come, right? Then the people, verse 4, of the land discouraged the people of Judah. And as they discouraged them, they made them afraid. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, there's the three stooges, of the book of Nehemiah. There's uh, Tobiah, Sambal, and Geshem. They're the three stooges, man. And they're constantly causing problems for Nehemiah. They're constantly trying to get him off the wall, stop rebuilding the wall and whatnot. But we can introduce that long before the three stooges of Nehemiah, long before. We're building the temple. We're trying to start trying to rebuild the, the culture a little bit. And we've already got people who are trying to discourage them and make them afraid. Verse five, they bribe counselors. It's what deceitful, wicked people do. They 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 discourage, they bring fear, they're terrorists. They they bring they bribe people, manipulate people against them to frustrate their purpose. All and listen, this is important. Now we're going to back out. Not just in this moment, but all the days of King Cyrus, Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. John Stott said the Christian's chief occupational hazards. Or depression and discouragement. Oh, he had no idea. Well, maybe he did. Uh, People ask, uh, is it okay to be discouraged and depressed? No, I don't think it's okay to stay there. But we will all find ourselves discouraged and depressed from time to time. This morning, if you find yourself today depressed, discouraged, you are not alone. There's not a person in this room who cannot identify with that belief, that feeling, at some point in their life. And if somebody would say otherwise, they got the sin of lying, not depression, and discouragement. What about a preacher? Could a preacher be discouraged, depressed? Absolutely. I've walked through some of that the last couple of years. Man, you look around and things aren't like the way they used to be. Is it discouraging, depressing? Yeah. But don't stay in discouragement and depression. It's like it's like a, doing marriage counseling, premarital. I love doing premarital counseling. Y'all know that. Like these young kids, they're so sweet. And they've never had a problem in their relationship whatsoever. The biggest argument is like, where they're gonna go eat dinner at? Like, come on, people. Welcome to real life when you get married. You know, right? Suck it up, Buttercup. Anyway, so you know, they, they, they don't have any idea whatsoever of, of any kind of whatever, and, and they're they're so sweet about it. And then they get in the real world, and things get get tougher, right? And I tell them, you know. All the time, you're going to find yourself at some point in discouragement, depression. You're going to find yourself in struggles in your marriage. You're going to find yourself in places that you don't want to be when it comes to your relationship with your spouse. Every couple finds themselves at some point there. The key is don't stay there long. Everybody has bad seasons. Just don't stay there long. Trudge through it. Number four, not everyone wants peace and restoration. This one's a hard Not everybody wants peace and restoration. Some revel in rebellion and drama. Now, do not look at your spouse or person in this room, please, right? I know this is a shock to you, but some people just like to be dramatic. Bailey. Some people just, I'm just kidding, y'all. Some people just like, wow, I missed that opportunity. Some people just like the drama. Think about our culture. It's not about being healed. It's about the attention they get from being broken. It's about initiating and instigating problem so they have a voice in the problem. Am I right? That's what we find in Ezra chapter 4. We have people who are causing problems just so they have a voice in the problem. As compared to, to wanting what's best for Israel, wanting what's best for Judah. I'm going to get in trouble for that later on. It's going to be fight after church. Y'all pray for me. Have you ever met Bailey? Ooh, she's, she calls it leadership potential. Ooh. Anyway, bless her. Listen, there are people in our life that are toxic people. We should not excuse our responsibility to love them and pray for them and encourage them with the truth. But do not let them discourage your obedience to God. Do not. Not everybody wants peace and restoration. Some really do like the drama. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. There's not riding the fence there. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We should all, as as born-again believers, we should want to see the healing of our world. We should want to see the healing of people's broken homes. We should want to see the healing of people's hearts. We should want a sinner to come to Christ, right? If you don't, check your heart. If you don't want healing... What is that? Number five. Devoted followers of Christ don't care. And this is where the bottom line is. Don't care about power or preference, but about the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. To, to be obedient to God means that you care more about God's glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you care about who gets credit or who's in charge or whose preference is being met. Amen? You know, maybe the the big issue back in Jerusalem is that you've got adversaries of the rebuilding project that really just want to be in charge. They want the power. They want to build it under their supervision. They, they want their, their preferences to be met. And I want to say, church, now I'm going to start preaching, and don't get mad at me. Don't throw rocks at me. But I want to say, as born-again believers, this side of the gospel, we're not that way as a church. But i got to tell you something. And every church struggles with this. We have preferences. We have things that we like and things we don't like. We, we, have, we have people that we like in leadership. Then we people, we I don't really like them. Right? And we struggle with that. We all struggle with that. You know what needs to die, church? Well, like preacher, like, yeah, you be me. What needs to die is our selfish attitude towards our preferences. Our selfish desire of power. It has to die. For the for the church today to be the church it was in the book of Acts and in the early church. That must become normative, where we are more humble, more self-sacrificing,. More, more, listen, we major in the majors, and we care less about the minors. We, the things that like if it's not about the glory of God and the gospel, color of carpet, I don't care. Pick one. I don't know about you guys. The, the older I get, I get a million questions a day, in my job, a million questions a day. and I'm, Danny, I'm getting to the point like I, I just don't care. Hey, what color do we need to have? I don't care. Just pick one, right? <laughs> I'm like, that's just me. No, they mean this. I, I, I think well, me. I am focused on the glory of God and, all, and, and the advancement of the gospel. Now, those things matter. Don't get me wrong, they matter. But it's sometimes we make the trivial more important than what's really important, right? We fuss about the stuff that's quite frankly stupid. I'm not supposed to say that word. I'm sorry. Paul's attitude in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. You know, Paul's attitude reflected humility. The greatest missionary that has ever existed was also the very guy that would go through the most for the gospel. He was humble. Didn't care about power. Didn't care about preference. He just wanted the glory of God and the gospel to be advanced. Now, there's a lot between those verses and the end of the chapter and we don't have time, but it's retelling again of this. And you're like, wow, we're gonna preach the whole four chapter. No, 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 I'm about to land the plane already. Can you believe it? Y'all are shocked. It's a miracle, really, modern day miracle. Between it is a sandwich of examples of time and again, time again, and historically how that's I mean, zooming out. And, and, and the author is writing for us now a very prominent theme in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that opposition is normative. Suffering is normal for churches, for people, for believers who are wanting to be fully devoted followers of Christ. This is normal. And so he gives examples of this stuff over and over again. And even ultimately, to where it stops the work. Verse 24 of Ezra chapter 4. Then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem stopped. The opposition was so great that the workers put down their tools and walked off. And it ceased. This, this should break your heart. It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. That God's work for rebuilding the temple, that, that's what God wanted, stopped because the opposition. And isn't that what we do sometimes? The moment we get a little kickback to the obedience part, we just stop. We put down our tools, we put down our weapons, and we pause. Let me make a really pointed statement. When opposition comes, that is the last moment to pause and stop. In fact, that is the greatest moment to build and to fight. Greatest moment to build and fight number six. In that line, sometimes opposition is actually confirmation that you are doing the God-honoring thing. I jokingly said that there are people in churches everywhere when they when (laughs) it's funny when they bring criticism and opposition. In many ways, it affirms that you're doing the right thing. I'm serious. Like, people are like, that's just mean, preacher. Am I one of them? Uh, I'm not answering that, okay? <laughs> like, there's, there's people who want the work to stop. And by, and, and by their opposition, you've got to check your heart here, by their opposition, it confirms that you're doing what God wants you to do, that you're being obedient in that moment. So sometimes opposition is actually confirmation. You're doing the right thing. One preacher says, don't worry when you meet opposition for obeying God. Worry when you don't have opposition because you're probably not obeying God. It's a good statement. Listen, if everything in your life is a bed of roses, everything's gravy, baby. All is good. Be careful. Be careful. Now, sometimes the bad things happen in life because of our sin, but sometimes opposition, bad things happen because... We are obeying God. And the world that we live in does not like obedience to God and Christ. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. There's the word again, blessed, makarios. You're fully satisfied when others revile you and they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. (laughs) Jesus says, rejoice. Woo! I'm being persecuted. Woo! Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do we, do we walk around with that attitude like, Woo, opposition? Woo! Yeah. No. We put our head down and our back hunches over and we get defeated. As compared to being charged up by opposition, we become defeated Christians. Number seven. And number last, adversity. To our faith is not just a possibility, but a promise. Yet adversity can, and I would say should, mature our faith. Adversity is gonna do one or two things it's gonna crumble our faith or grow our faith, one or the other. This is not a, you know, you might face trouble. Jesus said in John 16 33, in the world you will have tribulation. Listen, It's going to come. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have adversity. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to struggle. You're going to have trials. It's not always going to be easy, church. But just know this. Listen, in all of that, take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. One author said, if you're seeking to obey the Lord, expect opposition. Expect obstacles. Expect difficulties. But also expect God to see you through. That'll preach. Martin Luther said, they gave our master crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Ooh, buddy. Ooh. Uh, recently on social media, I put this thought out there friday i was thinking about the sermon preachers on weekends are weird like i was my mom's here today i was telling she was asking are you okay yesterday i was like yeah i'm just thinking about a sermon because about about friday evening all the way through saturday i start sermonizing in my head like it's like i just my eyes will glaze over hey what you think about i am thinking about a sermon okay it's just it's, it's playing right here y'all with me like weird i know okay friday night uh, this this thought came in my head and i and i, I put this out there wrote, the gospel promises adversity, suffering, trial, hardship, isolation, ridicule, and persecution. It promises those things. The gospel often leads to moments of decision that demand a hard line between safety, comforts, and social acceptance, and radical obedience to Christ. The gospel has led to sickness, imprisonment, exile, poverty, and death. This is the nasty side of the gospel. But, It's also the glorious side. Think about it. All of our heroes of the faith in the scriptures have experienced crippling adversity. But faith not only prevailed, it flourished. Our Lord Jesus suffered under a constant barrage of ridicule, accusation, to be condemned to die like an unrighteous criminal. Paul breathed hardship. Why? Here's the question, church. Why would we expect or want anything different? Why are we the exception to the rule of suffering? Why are we the exception to the rule of opposition? Why are we the exception to the rule of adversity? And the answer is, we're not. Christianity isn't for the weak, the distracted, the divided. Biblical Christianity is for those whose He strengthens, God strengthens to endure to the end. The gospel isn't for pansies. It's for conquerors. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know the opposition is normative. The more we walk with you, the more trouble we have. But Lord, to, to suffer with you is a gift. We are blessed as Paul would write, to share in your sufferings, becoming like you, even unto death. Lord, that, that's, Lord, that's identifying what Christ We don't want that, Lord. We don't run for that, Lord, but we certainly believe that opposition adversity is, is coming. It may already be here. Lord, help us, Lord to not put down our tools, to not put down our weapons. to help us not to give up in our faith, to, 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 to grow uh, complacent, Lord, to grow uh, pursuing safety and ease, Lord, at the cost of being obedient, Lord, to your call in our life. Lord, give us discerning eyes, discerning hearts, to see things beyond what we can see. Would help us to see as you see, to see the world that you love, but also see the trouble in the world and take notice. Father, I thank you, Lord, that the Scripture is full of suffering and struggles, for we are well prepared by reading the Scriptures to deal with our own suffering and struggles. Today, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, Lord, this is the gospel. Not that everything gets easier when you repent of your sin and turn to Christ. or the fact, that it may get harder, but by repenting of your sin and turning to Christ, our eternity is secure, and our hope is found in Christ today. Today, Lord, if there's anyone in a relationship with Christ, Lord, lead them to the cross. Lead them to repentance or recommit us as a church to radical obedience, not safety, not ease, path of least resistance, but obedience. Build your kingdom, build your church in Jesus' name.